0: Hello, everybody. This is your host, Bob Wintermute. Welcome again to New Books in Military History. Each week, we select a new book in the field of military history that we find interesting and interview the author. This week, we've selected David Ulbrich, author of Preparing for Victory, Thomas Holcomb and the Making of the Modern Marine Corps, 1936-1943. to the book is part of the Naval Institute Press's Leatherneck Original Series, published in cooperation with the Marine Corps Association. The story of the United States Marine Corps in the Pacific War is doubtlessly familiar to our listeners. Less well known, however, is the story of how the Marine Corps readied itself for the challenges of amphibious warfare during the interwar period, and no less obscure is the record of the Corps' first commandant, Thomas Holcomb. Generally obscured by the combat narrative of the Marines' first year in the South Pacific and the subsequent tenure of his successor, Alexander Vandegrift, Holcomb has long been skipped over by scholars and students. Historian David Ulrich remedies this oversight, however. In a well received book that presents its subject as a model of the progressive era officer who shepherded the American military into the modern era. Despite his mild demeanor, Holcomb, a combat veteran of the First World War and an experienced China Marine, exercised total control over the Marine Corps at a crucial stage in its history. While the organization had long shed its role, as the chief agent of American policy in the Caribbean and Latin America during the Banana Wars of the 1920s, the experience itself continued to linger. Looking ahead to the possibility of a future conflict with a major naval power, Holcomb guided the Marine Corps to its new mission as an amphibious expeditionary force, capable of waging war across long distances. Thanks to Holcomb's insight and leadership, Ulbricht concludes, the Marine Corps was well on its way to becoming an essential component of the American war effort in the Second World War. Welcome to New Books of Military History. This is your host, Bob Wintermute. Today we're fortunate to be talking with David Ulbricht about his recent book, Preparing for Victory, Thomas Holcomb and the Making of the Modern Marine Corps, 1936-1943. to David Olbrich is an Army historian who also specializes in 20th century Marine Corps history. How are you, Dave? Very good, Bob. Thank you. Thanks for coming on board today. Glad to be here. You want to say a few words about yourself and what prompted you to pursue this project?
1: Well, I'd, I'd grown up with stories of about World War II that my father told me. He was a World War II veteran and then uh, ended up going to college and majoring in history and uh, when I got to grad school, I was looking for a master's thesis topic. This was back in 1994, and uh, my th- my thesis advisor suggested, why don't you do something on Thomas Holcomb? And so I started working on Thomas Holcomb, and uh, we're starting to write the master's thesis as sort of a biography, and then just kept on through the dissertation. And uh, I stayed with the topic in part because uh, everyone at the Marine Corps, whether it was the History Division or the Heritage Foundation, was really, really gracious. And the mm-hmm. other thing uh, that appealed to me was there were plenty of sources, plenty of documents to look at, but not too many documents. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I tried to do something like this on George Marshall, it would be impossible. Uh, so the bread box was the right size, the Marines were gracious, and
0: I just got very interested in Marine Corps history. That's great. It's good to hear. Listen, I'm very interested, as we begin the, our interview, um, wh- how do you view – the strengths and weaknesses of biography itself as a vehicle to study military history. It's not often we have a chance to interview somebody who specializes in biography, and I wanted to get your views on that. Well, it's obviously
1: I think biography is a little bit out of vogue right now or has been in the last few years among academic historians, Um, I think because – Biography could be, you know, this person did something on this day, and then the next day they did something else, and the next day they did something else. So it would be the the biography version of one damn day after another. Uh, But I do think that it is very powerful um, to work with biography uh, as as long or because you can contextualize that person's life. Uh, whether it's in business, or the military, or sports, or, or what have you, I, I think it can be contextualized. And that's really the trick, is how to contextualize some someone's life well. Uh, I also think that the public likes biography, and I think students like biography. Students like to know the strengths and weaknesses, the flaws and the foibles and the triumphs of individual people. They identify with individual people, I think. Uh, in some ways more or more emotionally than, you know, trends or statistics or something of that nature.
0: Well, I will disagree with you. Biography is good, and it reaches out to students. I mean, I still teach, or I, I do teach, um, survey courses and specialized courses in military history. and It's an interesting vehicle for students because it takes complex themes and puts a face on them, and they appreciate that. And I think it also reflects in the way, you know, the... Personality-driven popular culture in which we live in today. Well, that's my views. So,
1: yeah. Well, one of the things I bring out when I'm teaching, I talk. Uh, you know, when I'm teaching about the origins of World War One. I, I talk about the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, mm-hmm. and that this 18, 19 year old kid comes up and shoots him, and he's, he's bleeding out there on the streets of Sarajevo. And the Archduke is, as I understand it, the last words were, Sophie live for our children. So yes. he's not concerned with, you know, you know the war, or the big themes, or diplomacy. He's concerned about his family. So, you know, I, I, I think that's powerful.
0: It is. Oh, it is. You know, let's, let's talk specifically about Tom Holcomb, Thomas Holcomb, rather, and how you portray him. You know, he doesn't come off as a stereotypical Marine of the period, does he? Uh, absolutely
1: not he uh he does he's he's five foot seven uh, so he 's not an imposing physical figure uh he is doesn 't have the the cool nickname like brute Kulak or you know chesty puller or howling mad smith he's not uh he 's not particularly charismatic or dynamic um, he, so he's not he doesn 't have the physicality that some other marines have however he is he, he does That does belie the fact that he was a fine marksman and a, a very good student and, uh, you know, happened to be at the right place at the right time doing the right things and, and learned from his own mistakes, but especially learned from other people's mistakes.
2: Right.
0: Well, I guess in some ways he stands astride, you know, that, that change from the progressive era mindset to a more pragmatic driven mindset of, of the 1940s. Um, I mean, is he an exceptional figure in your in your view, or is he typical, in a way, of the type of person the Marines were producing as an officer in the early 20th century? Well, obviously, I think
1: he's exceptional, otherwise I wouldn't have written about him. <laughs> but in terms of being typical versus atypical, um, I think there are, I think he's, he's exceptional or atypical among his marine officer peers Mm -hmm. because he did not go to college. He didn't go to the Naval Academy as as so many officers did and he uh, didn't go to University Mm -hmm. of Pennsylvania or University of Virginia as his predecessor and successor as commandant did. So he was self-taught in the business world, which is that's atypical for marine officers but that would have been very typical for someone in 1900 to become an apprentice as a clerk in a steel mill and learn business that way, uh, would have been very, very um, typical. Uh, only two percent of the population went to college in 1900. That's either going to the academies or being very wealthy. Then later on, he 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 distinguishes himself uh, with exceptional accomplishments. Uh, but then again, his peers also. Had had those, those similar accomplishments.
0: Mm-hmm. You know that he served in China in the 19 teens and later in the 20s, uh, before and after the First World War. You know, I, I find it interesting. Many Americans today have no idea that the United States was even involved in China during this period. Can you speak towards this? What he did there and how his experiences in China shaped his later career?
1: Yeah, uh, he um, he spent, I think. 12 or 13 years, between 1900 when he got his commission and 1930.
0: That's almost a career in itself, my word. Yes, it is, including back-to-back tours from
1: 1906, uh, or uh, 1908, rather, to 1914. Uh, so he spent six years on station. Uh, I think it opened him up to a, a broader world. Uh, most of his peers as, as uh, Marines... Uh, spent time in Latin America a lot of time in Latin America. He did a short stint in Guantanamo uh, Cuba and that 's it uh, but it it allowed him to see a wider world. I think it also allowed him to learn uh, a lot about uh, you know Asian culture sort of writ large. Obviously, the Japanese and the Chinese were different in their cultures, but he would have interacted with Japanese officers he learned the language uh, he would travel around on you know euphemistically called hunting trips to spy on the chinese and the japanese and 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 uh, uh, and other activities in the region so i he had this ability to take everything in and then uh you know kind of log it in the back of his mind for the future um, and uh, and then of course, being a China marine, that was the plumb appointment uh that was the absolute plum appointment overseas. So he plugged into that China Marine, uh, you know, kind of alumni uh, um, uh, group, if you will, that that helped him throughout his career. And he became the the senior Marine officer in China by 1927, uh, commanding the Legation Guard.
0: That's quite an accomplishment
1: at such a young eight point in his career, huh? And- and the other thing is, the other thing is, in terms of his promotions during the interwar years, you could have someone spend 15 years as a captain and then retire as a major. And he he was uh, lieutenant colonel as of 1920 and promoted to full colonel in back like 27, 28. So he was immune to that 15 year stint in rank.
0: Yeah, I was going to comment on that because the army has the same issue with superannuation and rank, of course, throughout its early and even, even more up to the, the Second World War history. It takes quite a, uh, an exceptional person to bypass those obstacles, and it seems like Holcomb certainly fits that profile. How does the First World War help him do that?
1: Well, he he is positioned perfectly in 1914, 15, 16, working at Headquarters Marine Corps. He is a, a captain and then a major, and he... Is working on an ad hoc war plans committee for John Lejeune, who's an assistant commandant.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And the, the Marines are starting to figure out how they might participate in World War I. Uh, they have to participate in World War I, otherwise they're going to be completely marginalized, at least that's what the Marines feel themselves. So then when commands start opening up, battalion commands start opening up, in 1917, Holcomb really, really wants to command a Marine battalion in combat. Uh, he hadn't seen combat before. He hadn't been to the Banana Wars and so on in really? Central America, and so. But he's perfectly positioned. He also he also seems to have, without ingratiating himself, he seems to have impressed the right people at the right time. Mm-hmm. Whether it's John Lejeune or Teddy Roosevelt or uh, uh, George Barnett, who was the commandant at that time, he seems to impress the people with his competence, with his calmness. And so once, once he gets that command, he takes the Marines into combat and, and, and uh, is, uh, uh, gets a Purple Heart and many, many decorations, the Quadigare de and Distingu- Distinguished Service Cross, leads Marines and, and the wheat fields there at Bellow Wood and later. And that, that experience, uh, gives him credibility with his peers and with younger and older Marines. And it also, Allows them just to take everything else in stride. When you're out in the field or you get caught in a barrage uh, uh, with a, a gas barrage by the by the Germans and you can remain calm, then everything else is, is gravy, right?
0: <laughs> uh, I would guess so. Having never experienced a gas barrage, I hope never well, to.
1: That's <laughs> right. That's right. Yeah. Well, I've, neither have I. But I'm guessing that that's that's pretty horrendous. And if you get through that, then. You, you can you can be calm about most other crises.
0: I would think so. I would, I would think so certainly. You know I wonder too if this facilitates his or helps him in his future as a commandant because he's attached to the second division. As uh, even though he's commanding marine uh, battalion, he's serving under army uh, control. Correct. Yeah yeah
1: he uh, the second division, and then he becomes a member of the second division association for the rest of his life mm-hmm. and so he would have rubbed elbows with future officers uh in the army um, and also got he also learned from uh the army who learned from the french uh you know the the general staff structure mm-hmm. uh, and he he helped he he liked that structure of course Lejeune really liked that structure and tried to restructure their marines. In stages in the 1920s, but then Holcomb picked that up when he became commandant and followed the same sort of you know separation of power, separation of authority, and kind of you know streamlining that was also of course part of uh, progressive man- management style, so it all kind of it all kind of blended together. I never found that he studied any of the great progressive thinkers, but um, he certainly absorbed. The progressive management style of efficiency and rationality and applied it wherever and whenever he could.
0: How about the 1920s and 30s? How does his career shape up during that period prior to his uh, appointment as commandant? Well, those are lean years for the Marines,
1: aren't they? Oh, very much so. Uh, the Marines topped out about 70, 75,000 men strong in World War One, and by by 1923-24, they're down in the 15,000-20,000 range, and uh, they remained at that between fifteen or 18,000 and 20,000 throughout the 1920s and 30s. And so it's a, a small core, and it's, uh, it's it looks like the core is, is uh, the Marines are, are struggling for mere survival externally, but internally. Uh, there's a lot of debates going on about the future. You have a clique that is still interested in the banana wars. you have another clique of the Marines that's interested in amphibious warfare. you have the first uh, the, or the second division you know alumni from World War one. you have the China Marines. So there's a lot of different sort of uh, not, not ten, I guess tension is the right word, but the Marines are searching for a new identity. and Holcomb, Seems to be able to figure out that amphibious warfare, uh, or what, you know, they didn't use the term expeditionary warfare anymore because that was a bad sort of, you know, uh, interventionist term, but the uh, uh, amphibious warfare was the way to go. So he seems to position himself, or he does position himself, to be at the right place at the right time, whether he's going to school at command and general staff or at the war colleges, or um, he commanded the, uh, 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 one of the uh, Marine Corps headquarters division, Marine Corps uh, policies and plans uh, for a couple of years. So so he's there where he's watching this develop and he takes a side, he takes a stand, he's going to back the amphibious warfare vision for the Marine Corps, which happens to be the one that wins out and he helps win it, but he's not high enough command to do anything. But then when it does become the Marine's raison d'etre, He's right there as a full colonel and a one-star general to take advantage of that right. and to pick up the ball and run with it.
0: Right. Well, that kind of ties into the question I'm, I'm thinking of next, which is he takes over the tenure of the Marine Corps school just prior to his appointment as commandant. You, you record in 1935, 1936. And it's there that the tentative manual for defense of advanced bases is written. Uh, not directly by Holcomb, but under his supervision, how does that reflect his thinking
1: during all of this he, all right the Marine Corps schools was not it was not a you know, not a big institution there are several hundred students maximum there mm-hmm. uh, He would have been he, he made it a habit of. Showing up during the middle of class and walking in and sitting quietly in the back of the room and observing. Of course, they uh, the Marines took a year or two off during that time from normal classwork to write the uh, the, uh, the two tentative manuals, the tentative manual for landing operations, and then the base defense manual. And at the same time, they're working on the small wars manual on his watch. Uh, so he he would have he would have been reaching down maybe not all the way into the weeds, but he certainly would have been reading drafts. And it did reflect his own beliefs uh, or his own views. When he was a student at the Army War College in 1931-32, he wrote this outstanding independent study that basically synthesized all the existing articles and ideas in the Marine Corps and predicted the gradual decline of banana wars as an emphasis Uh, uh, and then also predicted the the rise of amphibious operations. So he did that 31-32, then he gets to the uh, uh, Marine Corps schools in 35 and he helps to drive that process. Notice the Small Wars manual is a manual drawing on 25-30 years of, of, of occupation and activities in Central America. The tentative manuals are tentative, so they're looking into the future, looking at Gallipoli and other amphibious operations, but they're tentative so they're future-looking. Just just the way the manuals are titled shows that one is one role is declining and the other role is expanding.
0: Would you classify him as Mahanian?
1: Uh, he he would have been Mahanian in, insofar as if you're going to have the Mahanian navy and you're going to control the seas, uh, then Holcomb would argue you 've got to have marines defending advanced bases, harbors or ports or uh, refueling stations, uh, coaling stations, oiling stations, uh, 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 runways for aircraft. so he, he would he would he would go along with that and then use mahan 's ideas to help uh, gain resources. For the Marine Corps, that you need someone to do this, and the Marines are, Marines are the are the service to attack and also defend those those bases, along with the Navy, uh, the, uh, the naval battle fleet.
0: Right. Well, I mean, the flip side of that too is, you know, a hands never formally stated, but the sense of looking westward towards the next major challenge for American interests and. You know, I'm wondering if we can classify Holcomb as looking at Japan in the same lens as the next future challenge at this early date. I
1: think, I think yes, um, uh, Holcomb would see Japan as a threat and be looking west, orienting himself west, in part because well, it's the Pacific Ocean, so it's a navy sort of naval, seaborne sort of environment. Uh, Douglas MacArthur, notwithstanding, in the Philippines. (laughs) But
0: <laughs> we'll mention him as little as possible.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. You know, uh, you know. Brian Lynn's book, *Guardians of Empire*, covers the army in the Pacific extraordinarily well, but it's really mostly about the Philippines uh, and where where that stands. But Holcomb. Holcomb uh, uh, is, is interested in that, and of course, having been in China and having interacted mm-hmm. with the in, in the Asian world a lot, he also understood the diplomacy, uh, the geopolitics of the region. So I I think that it's it's I I don't know that I could find anything where he says I love Mahan and I agree with it and I want to look west, but there's a lot of sort of uh, uh, circumstantial or uh, impressions that one, one gets. And of course, the island bases in the Pacific are all also offering an opportunity for the Marines to carve a niche for themselves and also gain resources. Right. So it's not just a strategic benefit, it's also a budgetary benefit. Holcomb is very, very cagey that way, very clever, very shrewd in terms of using something like defense battalions to say, alright, we're gonna, get publicity out of this, we're going to get money out of this, and we will also fulfill a definite strategic need in War Plan Orange.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, let's, let's talk about his becoming Commandant, because I think we're, we're edging up to that point where he's moving beyond just being a thinker to an actor for the Corps as a whole. When he's appointed Commandant of the Marine Corps in November 1936, you, know, you note that he was jumped over eight other general officers to yes. be, receive the rank. It's what made Holcomb stand out so much, to be leapfrogged over eight other officers. Well,
1: there's a couple of a couple of things that go on there. First of all, of those eight other officers, the one uh, the uh, the two that would have been, the one or two or three that would have been the front runners couldn't have served were too old to serve a full term mm-hmm. of four years, and at least one of those, um, McCarty, I think. Uh, anyway. Didn't have combat experience in World War One.
2: Uh, okay. Uh,
1: the others um, either didn't have combat experience in World War One or didn't have the right temperament. And Holcomb Holcomb seemed to be at the top or second place in every category that that might be important in terms of leadership experience, in terms of educational background. He was number one or number two, or even number two in all those. So that his total package made him the best choice, okay. and the and the other thing that his predecessor John H. Russell uh, believed that seniority should not be the only determinant. In fact, seniority shouldn't even necessarily be a determinant on who the next commandant was. Reach down and get the best man for the job, okay. and then the other the other person who made the ultimate decision was Franklin Roosevelt, and mm-hmm. Roosevelt had an uncanny ability to assess character, temperament, uh, and uh, the capabilities of his subordinates, and then figure out a way to put the right person at the right place at the right time. Uh, it, it, it's really uncanny how he makes the right choices. Mm-hmm. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt does. so, And Holcomb and Roosevelt had, had been friends going back to World War I when Holcomb was working on the Marine War plans, and Roosevelt was Assistant Secretary of the Navy.
2: Does
0: that then raise the possibility of, of favoritism? or uh, What was that again? Does that raise the specter of favoritism? Favoritism,
1: um, favoritism is would be too strong a term. Because they were friends, because they had worked together, um, in World War One, and then they had, you know, socialized when they, when, when they, when they were both in Washington D.C. They would socialize. They would move in the same sort of wealthy circles. Maybe favoritism, but also it gave Roosevelt a chance to watch Holcomb in action at different stages in his career.
0: So he was a known commodity
1: then. Remember? A known commodity. Mm-hmm. A known commodity. And and they liked each other. In fact, after Holcomb becomes commandant. Holcomb's son, Franklin Holcomb, gets very sick with a fever or something, and his he's bedridden for six months and his muscles atrophy, and he needs to go swimming to rebuild his muscles. Uh-huh. And so Holcomb would take his son on his way to Marine Corps headquarters, drop him off at the White House. He'd go swim in the White House uh, pool, and then Holcomb would pick him up. Thomas Holcomb would pick his son up later on. So,
0: well, Certainly a close- considering can- Roosevelt's own affliction, you could certainly, I would Imagine could see the sympathy on his part. Oh yeah, oh yeah.
2: That's oh, interesting.
0: That's yeah. that's a face a, very you know nice human humane face upon the relationship between the two men. That I hadn't thought about.
1: You know, and 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 the other thing is the reality is Holcomb did have Holcomb had chops. He had props and chops, and you know he he had a a, a very distinguished career yeah. uh, compared with any other officer at the time. Yeah. So he did,
0: was, did any of the others resent Holcomb's appointment?
1: Um, no, I, I think maybe they might have, uh, initially, uh, maybe I don't have any proof of that, but, uh he was, he was respected by his peers. In fact, the, uh, I think it's, uh, uh, McCarty, I think Louis McCarty, little, um, anyway, uh, the, the, uh, the, the Marine major general who was the front runner, runner who was the senior officer in the Marine Corps that Holcomb le- leaped over, ended up being his, uh, you know, one of those biggest advocates over the next several years, you know, from 36 to, say, 38. Right. So there doesn't seem to be the resentment. I mean, compare that with, you know, uh, you know, husband Kimmel jumping over so many uh, oh, senior sure. officers. Or John be, uh,
0: Pershing jumping over, you know, uh, Tasker Bliss and others in 1918 or 17, rather.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's not that – there doesn't seem to be that resentment again the the Marine Corps officer by the time it was a very small officer corps yeah. you know, and at that high rank, there's just a dozen people you know in the running for anything, so they all knew each other
0: okay. Where do you think Holcomb made his greatest mark in the Marine Corps before december seventh nineteen forty one If I had to pick
1: one place um that he made his greatest mark, it's very hard uh but I think in his relationship that he developed with Congress, Mm -hmm. Uh, the Marine Corps was beholden to the Navy for material, beholden to the Army for hand-me-downs, beholden to Congress for money, Mm -hmm. and Holcomb developed a very good working relationship, uh, particularly with the House Naval Affairs Committee, chaired by Carl Vinson of Georgia, and then the uh, ranking minority member, a Republican named Melvin Moss. From Minnesota. Now, of course, Carl Vinson was pro-navy anyway, uh, but Holcomb really, really forged a wonderful relationship. He had this. He he would do this himself, and he demanded that other Marines uh, testifying for Congress say the same thing. If if there was an, if there was a question from a congressman or from a senator, and they didn't know the answer, he's, they'd say, you know, Holcomb told him to say, "I don't know. I'll get you an answer tomorrow." And so this this honesty and candor uh, built universal respect. You know, some of the isolationists may not have liked the idea of a stronger Marine Corps, but there was this universal respect for Thomas Holcomb. He said what he meant, and he meant what he said,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and was honest. But then when World War II starts, then he doesn't need to go and, well, the United States military didn't need to justify anything in terms of expenses, but he really didn't need to to justify why he wanted more money for something, he'd just walk in and ask for money, uh, ask for resources, ask for you know uh, uh, help from Congress, and uh, they were very happy to you know throw a lot of resources. In fact, too many resources. He had to he had to restrain Congress once the war started because he couldn't absorb so much material and so many men into the Corps as quickly as Congress wanted.
0: Did this affect the commandant's relationship with the CNO? Uh, it.
1: In terms of um, – it, 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 Holcomb's relationship with Congress did not give him uh, – uh, uh, what do you mean, in a competitive way or in a jealous way or well, something? Well, in a
0: competitive or in a feeling perhaps on a part of, of the CNO, who, as we know, could be a very headstrong individual. I point towards Ernest King as the most obvious example, a, a, fea- a fear that the Commandant, as a titular subordinate, was going around or could be going around – um, the end to plead a case for the Marine Corps outside of what the CNO may feel warranted or acceptable, or was that uh, even an issue? Not not with Harold
1: Stark, who I think was chief of naval operations beginning what 1938 mm-hmm. or so, yes, 31. And Harold R. Stark, Betty, uh, as he was nicknamed in the you know the communiques. Um, as he signed his name, uh, he, uh, Harold R. Stark and Thomas Holcomb had a very close working they, uh, r- relationship. They were good friends, and from you're talking about pragmatism, and uh, uh, not as a philosophical way, but prag- not necessarily as a philosophical way, way of thinking, but as a you know, sort of attitude towards getting things done. Stark would much rather have Holcomb getting resources for the Marine Corps than having the Army uh, and infringing upon Navy prerogatives in the Pacific, for example. Sure. So it, it, it's like, um, the devil I know is better than the devil. I don't. Um, uh, but they were very close friends as for, you know, as for King, he was, you know, he was an SOB and everyone knew it. And but Holcomb also got along with him. He may, he did not like King, but there was mutual respect there. And Holcomb could even get along with really cantankerous people like, uh, well, like King, Yeah. Uh, For a common purpose.
0: I would say it was probably one of the chief qualifications of being a commandant was being able to get along with King at that point, but I digress.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah. (laughs) It's interesting because what you're describing with Holcomb stands out for me as I read the book, and again, our talk reinforces it. Um, Holcomb really comes across as a particularly modern, or even dare I say a postmodern, branch chief in that he recognizes the importance of public relations, he's massaging Congress, he's he's working really the 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 sidelines of military appropriations for his branch. Would you agree or am I reaching too far? Uh, yeah no I I think you're I think you're
1: right on. He is he is Although terming the, using the term massaging sounds almost, uh, you know, kind of sort of, uh, you know, uh, has a negative con- a connotation, but m- massaging in so far as he is trying to maximize the resources that he may, m- may be able to obtain from Congress or the Navy or from the War Department or anyone else or from the president, because, and he does massage it, but there's substance behind that. He does have a very compelling argument that he makes to gain resources for the defense battalions, or gain resources for Marine aviation, or to get more resources for recruitment. So he does have there's substance behind that massage, you might say. Right. And, and but no, he's he's very good at interpersonal, you know, uh, relationships with people, and uh, you know, and he's in this way. This is one of the reasons why I argue that he is he should be ranked among not only the great commandants but also the great military managers. Such as George Marshall and Dwight D. Eisenhower and Chester Nimitz. He was he was he was cut out of their mold. Um, uh, he was he was in their mold, as opposed to King or MacArthur or Patton or you know others who are you know firebrands. Holcomb was not a firebrand by any stretch.
0: Right. But I think it's also safe to say too that under Holcomb, you know perhaps more than any other branch. Up till that time, the Marine Corps takes control of its image to reinforce its legitimacy. I mean that's kind of postmodern too, isn't it? I think so yeah,
1: yeah it's it's uh, they do craft an image and then craft uh, and then work the symbols to fit into that image uh, and then uh, very very pragmatic, very clever, very shrewd, so that you know if if the country's isolationist then you call it a defense battalion because defense doesn't sound very good or, or, or sounds good to an isolationist, sounds good to all but the most ardent isolationists. Yeah, we want a strong defense we just don't want to get sucked into the war
2: mm-hmm. you know,
1: we don't use the term the Marines drop the term expeditionary for, force you know, uh, from the World War I era because it had a World War I era uh, kind of connotation and also a banana wars, Central American connotation, so they call it the fleet marine force uh, there's, there's a lot of and they also work very closely with uh, marketing firms. Uh, 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 there were J. Walter Thompson's firm. He was a, a Marine from World War One who takes over a major advertising marketing firm. And so they have their finger on the pulse of kind of what Americans want to hear, or what they think Americans want to hear, and they try to tell it to them. Yet still trying to be as legitimate and not lie about things. And Holcomb would not would not allow any. False claims. In fact, when Marines were involved in advertisements, he said, Look, we need to make sure that we like this product. If we're going to allow a Marine to be part of an advertisement or part of a um, uh, you know, a function of a state fair or whatever, mm-hmm. we've got to go over and make sure that this is consistent with Marine Corps values and Marine Corps images, mm-hmm. or the Marine Corps image and symbols. So, it,
0: very clever. Yeah, it's extremely so. And again when you're dealing with a branch that's struggling, it seems, weakly for its fair share of appropriations, let alone survival before the war begins. It's, it's important.
1: And there are there are a couple of up and coming
0: scholars,
1: Colin Colburn at Southern Mississippi and Heather Marshall, who just graduated from Duke University, who are dealing with public relations, with advertising, with recruitment, and going at it using, uh, you know, kind of uh, cultural, historical methods Mm -hmm. uh, to tease out what are the real meanings, what's going on between the lines. We're talking thick description and, dare I say, deconstruction of of those symbols.
0: I can't wait to interview them in the future, but right now we're still talking to you. What what's Thomas Holcomb's perspective on minority enlistment? He is he
1: is he is progressive in his managerial attitudes, but he's not progressive in uh sort of social issues. He uh was adamantly opposed uh to minorities being allowed into the United States Marines. Uh in fact if you put the, the service chiefs on a on a spectrum, I think are maybe the most tolerant or well, I mean tolerant in and, and that in the nineteen forties era, not tolerant today, would have been either you know Marshall or Half Arnold. But then on the other side of the spectrum of sort of what we would call today intolerant intolerance or or even racism, you would have Thomas Holcomb and, and Ernie King, Ernest King. He he saw he he grew up in Delaware. Thomas Holcomb grew up in Delaware,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, his family moved to Washington D.C. in the 1890s. So he in Washington D.C. was very tiny. You have to you have to guess that the talk of the dinner table in 1896 was about Plessy v. Ferguson. So he grew up in a uh, uh, Plessy v. Ferguson separate but equal, and that equal was in quotes right. separate but equal world. He had not interacted with uh, many African-Americans, certainly not uh, as peers or as, you know, kind of uh, in African-Americans acting in roles of authority or or of responsibility. Uh, so he hadn't interacted with them. Uh, and, you know, he felt there's a circuit. I've got a quote in the book where a Filipino-American wanted to join the United States Marine Corps.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: December 11th, 1941, he tries to join. A Filipino-American tries to join the Marine Corps. He's physically fit. He can pass the tests. And then the uh, recruiter finds out that he's Filipino-American. He says, well, you can't join. Sorry. So December 11th, 1941, this young Filipino-American writes Franklin Roosevelt, as millions of Americans did, and laid out why he's patriotic, Why he was actually born in the United States. He's a citizen, and asking, could he please join? Mm -hmm. And then within a month, the White House staff obviously, Roosevelt didn't see this letter. He sends it over to the White House post office staff, sends it over to Marine Corps headquarters, Marine Corps, and a major writes back, Well, you know, we find that the Marines are a small and uh, organization with diverse responsibilities, and only Caucasians can handle those. Sorry. And so it was, it was, uh, it was only ca- – and, and the word that is used in the letter, the official letter coming from this major, was Caucasians. Now, this major didn't write this policy. It would have come from higher up.
0: From Holcomb, right. From
1: Holcomb. Holcomb would have signed off on that.
2: Right.
0: And it
1: went for, uh, you know, uh, ex-convicts too. What, what, a couple hundred thousand ex-convicts or even, you know, uh, were served in, in, in U.S. Armed Services. The Marines would have none of that. They, and for the same reasons, you know, the small elite force, and we've got to have men of high morals. So there was definitely a hierarchy there, uh, a racial hierarchy and also a moral hierarchy right. that Holcomb, you know, uh, believed in and, and made policy.
0: And you certainly won't see, you know, black Marines or other minorities until he leaves the commandant's chair, um, uh- you know, not until not, 1944, of, 1945. Right, not as
1: officers. Certainly, there were no marine, uh, no African American officers in the United States Marine Corps mm-hmm. in World War II. Uh, there were, uh, you know, a few thousand that had made it into the corps by the time he retires in 1943, but they were serving in essentially uh, as stevedores.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's interesting when you describe the issue with the Filipino um, volunteer because I, I see that. This is a particular case where Holcomb's experience as a Pacific Marine or a China Marine is very you know informative. Um, other Marines had served as you know in um the Caribbean and they acquire quite a racist outlook there. Holcomb serves in the Pacific and China, and nevertheless he acquires a racist outlook through that service as well is that i got to be careful here because I don't want to, to make claims or have it sound like I'm making claims, but is that in a way reflective of the Marine Corps as an institution, you think, at this time? Yeah, I do, I do think so.
1: I think certainly the Marines serving in, in Latin America, particularly those Marines serving in Haiti, uh, would have come off with uh, – if they had – if they had what we would call racial tendencies, racist tendencies, going into Haiti, those would have been those would have been reinforced and verified. The other thing is um, uh, Heather Marshall, actually in her master's thesis of all things, found that of the officer corps in the U.S. Marines in the 1920s and 30s, 40 to 40 or even 50 percent came from the southern states the states that had been the confederacy right. and it's a huge percentage because by that time the the south made up maybe 15% of the entire caucasian population in the united states maybe 20% yet they're overrepresented in the core so i think that one i think that it it may have fed it may have fed sort of latent or kind of um, environmental accepted environmentally accepted beliefs with these marines upbringings and then, you know, it just becomes this vicious cycle, a self fulfilling prophecy, you know. So the other thing, yeah, and, and Holcomb certainly did, did go out in the countryside and deal with, uh, you know, deal with uh, 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 Chinese commoners and so on. So I, I think it fed what was already, what may have already been there was, was fed and, and made worse from our perspective.
0: Right. You know, one of the most controversial interpretations of the Pacific War is John Dower's War Without Mercy thesis. You know, and you and I both know what it is. I mean, I'll describe it in brief for our listeners where Dower portrays the Marine Corps and the Imperial Japanese forces being locked in a bitter struggle, made more ferocious by the incipient racism existing in both cultures and the influence of propaganda during training. How does Holcomb fit into that narrative, or is it a mistake to even include him in the, the Dower thesis?
1: In terms of the anti Japanese propaganda, uh, I, I don't have any evidence that he looked at the you know the the you know Tokyo Jokyo posters and said, "Yeah, I like this," mm-hmm. but he certainly he certainly did uh, uh, did sign off on all of that. All of the indoctrination that went on in, in training, I do have letters that um, uh, letters from officers and civilians that wrote him uh, that you know you call the Japanese uh, Japs and Nips and uh, explain to him how how uh, you know Alexander Vandergrift writing from Guadalcanal explained how suicidal and how fanatical the Japanese were. Yet at the same, you know, in the next couple of sentences, Alexander Vandergriff commanding the Marines in Guadalcanal say, "We can still beat them, though. Uh, you know, we're still better than they are, but they are fanatical." Uh, I I don't I don't recall seeing him writing anything uh, uh, vitriolic about uh, the Japanese. But you know, there's two ways to look at it. Either he he was he was benign, or you know we were you know the United States was fighting Japanese, and the United States had to win, but I'm not sure in terms of of the dower thesis. I can't think of any uh, episode uh, and and the documents where he agreed with that, but he certainly signed off he 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 was a shrewd enough publicist that he would have signed off and made sure that the uh, propaganda uh during a, a boot camp. Uh, the training posters and, and that tone of the tone that was taken, if not the particulars, was a anti Japanese way, was designed to inflame American anger against Japan in any way possible. So I guess I'm coming at it as circumstantial
2: evidence. Okay. Okay.
0: You know, obviously, you know, his role as a commandant is very ma- micromanagerial. You know, with, he's not going to be taking a direct role in planning operations, certainly, let alone their conduct. But, you know, so I read your book, I get the sense of a branch chief who was really in touch and firmly connected with his theater commanders. Does his relationship with people like Vandegrift or Holland Smith help facilitate victory? Yes, I, I, I do think it
1: does help facilitate victory. Holcomb had friends in the Marine Corps, but in the case of of uh, Philip Torrey, for example, who had been commander of the First Marine Division in nineteen early late nineteen forty one, early nineteen forty two. He's a friend, a long standing friend, but he replaces Torrey because he doesn't think Torrey's, you know, competent to lead a division in combat, and replaces him with Vandergrift. And then he carries on these close, uh, especially with Alexander Vandergrift, uh, a, a very close relationship in which letters and telegrams are going back and forth. So by doing that, especially in Vandegrift's case, um, he 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 gets the real scoop of what's going on. Mm-hmm. There isn't any kind of of uh, you know kind of uh, bloviating going on in these letters and these notes going back back and forth. And by doing that, Holcomb inspires trust among his subordinates, particularly Vandegrift. But he got letters before World War II. He got plenty of letters from, you know, uh, uh, the Marines in, in China, for example, that lay out very, very specific sort of, uh, you know, attitudes and observations about the Japanese in China after 37 and and so on. So he builds these personal relationships, which on an individual level helps efficiency, um, but it also means that, that his subordinates can ask him things, and he will work with them. He'll get things done. Uh, it, it just, it, it's, it's very effective. I mean, micromanaging is, has kind of a negative term or a negative connota- connotation. But, yeah, I think he was kind of a micromanager. He wanted to get a feel for the weeds, not all the weeds, but enough of the weeds that he would really understand what's happening on Guadalcanal uh, and, and, uh, and that sort of thing.
2: Right.
0: We mentioned Ernest King. How does he get along with other commanders, uh, particularly George Marshall and um, Douglas MacArthur? Um,
1: as far as uh, Douglas MacArthur goes, Holcomb doesn't have a whole lot to do with him, except on the run-up to Guadalcanal,
2: mm-hmm.
1: because Guadalcanal is close enough to Douglas uh, MacArthur's Southwest <coughs> Pacific Theater that you know uh, uh, Douglas MacArthur wanted a piece of that action, but fortunately... Um, by then, Ernest King uh, and Harold Stark worked to keep um, keep MacArthur out of Guadalcanal proper. Uh, he but MacArthur, I mean, Holcomb didn't interact with MacArthur directly because MacArthur was 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 uh, was in, was in the Philippines from what 1935 on. Right, uh, but he didn't. I don't think Holcomb would have liked MacArthur because he was too brash, too politicized. I don't have any proof of that. Too uh, too uh, um, too self absorbed uh, I think i don 't again i don 't have any part of that, but just judging by holcomb 's attitude about howling mad Smith when howling mad Smith becomes howling mad he doesn 't he thinks Smith is a good corps commander but shouldn 't be commandant because he he 's too abrasive mm-hmm. uh, anyway, in terms of uh Marshall Holcomb and Marshall were contemporaries throughout their careers their cross their paths crossed you know several times. Uh, I think they got along very well on a personal level. They could respect each other's compet- competence and skills. Obviously, uh, Marshall resented the Marine Corps in general because the Marines got this great publicity. The Marines would get whatever they wanted for Congress, and you know the Marines because it's the Marine Corps was a smaller organization could adapt more quickly than uh, than the very large Army could. But that's more like you dislike the team that someone else plays for, someone else coaches, but not the coach himself.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I think he gets along very well. He shares some, some uh, uh, observations about, you know, about how he handles stress. Uh, Marshall wrote to at some point saying, how do you handle the stress? He says, well, I leave at 430 and I take my weekends off when I can. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so and he,
0: they both uh, seem to be good judges of character in terms of subordinates. I mean, yeah. you know about Marshall's little black book. And from what we see, Holcomb, you know, had a good eye for good subordinates. Yeah, he.
1: There was a, a, a major general named Vogel, Clayton Vogel, who was going to be a corps commander, and Holcomb kind of moved him out of that corps commander, turned him into more an, an administrator on the on the West Coast rather than send him out to the Pacific, and instead went with Howling Man Smith
2: mm-hmm.
1: because well, Smith Smith should be out there you know, arguing with Richmond, Kelly, terrible Turner. You know, that's, that's the personality that Howling Matt Smith so had. So Holcomb could identify what personality and what skill type and what uh, should be placed in, in which position.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, he retires in December 1943. And uh, I'm, I'm generally reluctant to engage in counterfactual, but it does come up here. I mean, had he remained... At the helm throughout the end of the war, is there any reason to think that there might have been a different course to victory? Um, I don't
1: think so. I don't think so. We talk about December thirty first, nineteen forty three, when he retires. Uh, Vandergriff takes over. Alexander uh, Vandergriff takes over as Marine Corps Commandant from forty four January first, forty four through forty seven. Holcomb has already in my opinion, set the stage for everything that's going to happen. The island hopping campaign has started. That's probably not going to change one way or another, because the Navy has a buy-in there, too. Holcomb's got the Marine Corps up to 385,000 men. The Marines cap out about 600,000 men by 1945, but that jump of 50 percent, isn't that significant a jump compared to the Marines at Pearl Harbor when there were fifty or sixty thousand Marines? The jump in two years from December '41 to December '43 is fifty-sixty thousand to three hundred eighty-five thousand. So basically, Holcomb has restructured the Marine Headquarters, Marine Corps. He streamlined things. So the reality is, Vandegrift has can take over. An organization that's already functioning well and make it function better and finish out the conflict i don't want I don't want to discount Vandegrift's efforts at all, but Holcomb definitely set the stage and i don't I don't necessarily see anything uh, uh, changing on any level uh not 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 delaying the war mm-hmm. another six months not deciding to bypass the Philippines or anything of that nature
0: What about Peleliu?
1: that is that's uh what, June nineteen forty four.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean it's all it stands out as in the his, in the history as the one mistaken landing.
1: Yeah, yeah, it should have been bypassed. Yeah. What are the Japanese gonna do? Ride out on kayaks and attack the United States fleet right. you know, passing by. It's I think that Holcomb would have would have tried to argue against uh attacking Peleliu. Um, but I, 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 as as I recall, I think Douglas MacArthur wanted that to happen to to somehow protect his flank. Right. And I think MacArthur MacArthur's this this wild card, and you know he 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 would get what he wanted within his own sort of you know realm, uh, realm of influence, sphere of influence. So I think MacArthur still would have would have uh, gotten Peleliu. Uh, I do believe that. Holcomb would have,
0: uh, would have would have acquiesced. You think?
1: I think he would have had to because MacArthur, well, MacArthur was a force of nature, for better
0: or for worse. I, I well, I mean, the Joint Chiefs could barely control him. I know that. So yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, again, I, I don't try to veer into counterfactual often, but it does. You know, it's 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 a possibility here. Well, in terms, of, in, in terms of
1: counterfactuals, though, if Holcomb had stayed on for another you know, couple of years, year and a half. Uh, then Vandegrift, as you want know, to talk about hindsight, Monday morning quarterbacking, armchair generaling, whatever, uh, Vandegrift would not have had the glory and the prestige of winning the war. And then when you have the unification crisis in 1947, then Hulk, I mean a Van, Alexander Vandegrift would not have had the credibility or the chops to really push for. You know maintaining the autonomy and and independence of the marine Corps as as a marine Corps, so you know theres there is that True. and hol and, and Vandergrift is the one that's remembered as winning the war, and Holcomb is the one that oh well, who was he again right,
0: so there's that too, goes both ways right well, after retirement, Holcomb goes to South Africa, correct yes, uh what's he there for?
1: Uh, he is he he retires uh, December 31st, is then recalled to active duty in January as a four star, and he he is and he he goes on some a speaking tours and so on. But then by April they want to do something with him. Now Franklin Roosevelt loved the Marines, and when he talked to Holcomb Tommy, as he would call him, he talked about we Marines. And I think Roosevelt wanted, he would say, we Marines, Roosevelt wanted to put Holcomb on the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, but MacArthur, I mean, uh, 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 Marshall and uh, uh, Ernest King would have no part of that. They just did not want another influence uh, like that on on the uh, Joint Chiefs. So I think they needed to have something to do with, they needed to send them somewhere. They needed to get them out of, wanted to get them out of D.C. And, um there was it was a very important position. Ministers to South Af- South Africa was an important position because you had to fix the lend lease issue. How much money was South Africa going to uh, you know give back, pay back to the United States for lim lease efforts? And so that was really his job. The the uh, I guess the the uh, uh, the embassy there, uh, uh, the legation there was a mess in terms of administrative. Problems, and so we sit there to fix some problems, but also I think kind of get him out of the you know kind of get him out of d c and also he he it was kind of seen by him also as oh, this is my retirement gift sort of my my uh my uh you know put out to pasture go to South Africa for a few years and and his wife actually wanted to go because his wife and mrs holcomb beatrice suffered from chronic headaches, and the weather in South Africa was expected to make her suffering less severe.
0: Does the visit to South Africa open his eyes towards issues of race?
1: Yes, I believe it does. Um, He, in the United States, when he was commandant, there was, you know, segregation and he made some comments. For example, as commandant, he said, he used his progressive management uh, uh, tendencies to justify not having African Americans in the Marine Corps. He said, he said, i don 't want African Americans in the Marine because if I have those people in the marine corps i 'm going to have to use my best officers and nCOs to train them and supervise them, and those nCOs should be used elsewhere those officers should could be better used elsewhere you know so these are kind of strongly worded things, but you know he would have he was not he was not the he was not the violent racist that that others in the united states other few others in the United States were I think when he gets to South Africa, he sees what the horrific conclusion of racism really was, Uh, even before uh, apartheid was established after the election in 1948. You had de facto apartheid in South Africa, Um, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and he is interacting with the government, and the turning point occurs in 1936. There's, I guess, the black African majority um, are, are the miners, the gold miners or diamond miners, whichever it was diamond miners, gold miners, they go on strike, there's 60,000, 80,000 of them that are on strike. And the South African government sends in, you know, the brute squad, sends in, you know, and kills several dozen and wounds 3,000 and sends these bleeding uh, black South African miners back to the mines. Mm -hmm. And it's so brutal that it shocks Holcomb. And he's writing back in his communiques to the State Department, and I believe that Marshall was Secretary of State in 46, if memory serves, but he's writing back to State Department saying these people are in the dark and not the black Africans, the white governments in the dark. They're oppressive, they're repressive, they're undemocratic, and they are centripetal in outlook. And when you're writing as, an, as, as a minister ambassador, you can say what you want in these, these communiques. So I think that he, 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 saw, he saw that racism was, could have some really, really bad effects if you took it to its horrific conclusion. If you rationalized it out as far as you could that another race is inferior, then they really aren't human, then you can treat them however you want.
0: Does I, he, I, I, he, oh, Well, I was gonna say, does, does that turn affect his outlook when he returns home then, or? I don't have any evidence of
1: what happens after he returns home in uh, 1948 for his permanent retirement. Right. Uh, I, I don't have any evidence. I just have to go on what I've read in those State Department communiques mm-hmm. uh, from South Africa to Washington D.C. And the words, though, that he uses are very, very—they're strong, and there's there's no way to. Well,
0: oh, they're unequivocal. Yeah. That's sure. right.
1: Oppressive, undemocratic. These are not. <laughs> these are not. These are not soft terms. Right. These are not squishy. Malleable terms. This is not throwing jello. This is, these, these are not throwing jello on the wall. These are unequivocal. Right. Right. So, um, so I, I don't know what happens thereafter, but he does. He, 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 he does get a dose of what real racism, or not real racism, what what how extreme racism is is is, is very violent, and very hurtful. He gets a full dose of
0: that. Okay. You know, it's clear that Holcomb. From your book, is a tremendously important and influential commandant. Um, probably one of the most influential uh, in history. Why is he such a relative unknown in comparison with his peers or his predecessors? That's a
1: that's a really good question. And in fact, when I started working on him, I'd ask Marines or I asked other military historians. They want to know anything about Thomas Holcomb, and they've never heard of him. Uh, and one of the, the the two questions I started out with was: the Marines are going from eighteen thousand officers and men to three hundred eighty five thousand officers and men on this guy's watch, seven years and one month. How did he do it, and was he successful?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I I think that as I worked more and more to try to track out and try to measure success uh, without making this some sort of you know pure policy study, I found that he's not a glory seeking individual. He didn't. You know, he, he's very much the Eisenhower, very much the Marshal, very much the Nimitz, uh, 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 the, the Nimitz figure. Oh. What did Chester Nimitz have? Have one or two cameramen following him around? And <laughs> Douglas MacArthur had 300. You know, um, he didn't, Holcomb did not grab the spotlight. He would be willing to give a speech, go on the radio, but he didn't grab the spotlight the way others did. And then in terms of World War I, he was a major, then a lieutenant colonel. He was in a you know, battalion and assistant regimental commander, so he wasn't high enough in rank to grab a lot of headlines in World War I either. He didn't go to Haiti or to Nicaragua where he could have grabbed headlines like Smedley Butler and Chesty Puller and whoever else. And not enough was happening in China to grab headlines when he was there. he was there in 1937-38, he might have gotten some headlines. So, so in that respect, but he didn't, he didn't, seek, he didn't seek glory for himself. And I think the Marines want – I think the Marines' own publicity machine wants the Chesty Pullers, wants the brute Kulaks, Mm -hmm. wants the Howling Mad Smiths, because those are more uh, romantic and romanticized, and there's more bravado there.
0: But again, a publicity machine that he helped establish, too. That's right. That's right. Ironically, yes.
1: The publicity machine he helped establish or expand exponentially. There had already always been a Marine Corps publicity machine, but he expands it and really, you know, kind of focuses. Is it? It's uh, it forgets about him.
0: Is Holcomb still relevant?
1: I believe so. Yes, I believe so. Yes. Um, in trying to talk about his leadership style, I borrowed some ideas from Fred Greenstein's book, *The Presidential Difference*. Uh, Greenstein is a longtime uh, presidential studies scholar, Mm -hmm. and he looks at presidents since Roosevelt and tries to figure out what are the leadership traits without making it, you know, seven habits of successful leaders, you know, that sort of thing. And Holcomb's leadership traits, uh, his ability to rally his colleagues and structure their activities, his ability to process all kinds of input and information and then focus on a goal, his ability to manage emotions and keep his subordinates focused on goals. Those kind of things, those techniques are useful not only in wartime but in peacetime and business, so there's some, I think, some universal value there. But also our military today and in, in, in 2011 is going through another transitional period, mm-hmm. albeit it's downsizing, it's demobilizing, it's shrinking, but the habits that Holcomb Had and his skills and his accomplishments in the years of famine, and then transitioning into the years of plenty. We're in reverse right now, or we will be for the next several years, I believe. If if everything, it's you do you mobilize, you demobilize, you face the same sort of challenges in reverse. Holcomb was able to. Be successful in the years of plenty excess, successful in the years of famine, so I think there is a model there's also models for how he dealt with Congress, how he dealt with other officers mm-hmm. so yeah, I do think he's relevant today not just for the story and the particular facts but about, also about the uh, or for the attitudes and his sort of temperament I think it's uh, you know could be quite valuable to. Uh, to today's serving military or any other organization, any other big organization that's experiencing flux. Right. Right.
0: Dave, we're gonna. I think we're about ready to wrap things up here, and right. we have a customary last question uh, right. that we ask our authors. Um, what's next? What are you planning on attacking next with reference to Marine history? And I'll, I'll make a caveat here, or a i'll I'll make a release here. Dave and I are actually cooperating and collaborating on a future textbook project. but aside from that, what are we looking at?
1: Well, um, obviously, my day job is working for the u s Army Engineer School, so I don't have a lot of time uh, uh, to work on other things, but I would look I would look forward to um, uh, collaborating with an, uh, another scholar on a, a book on the history, or survey text on the history of amphibious warfare uh, that said, you know, a couple years, two or three years in the making. And the other thing is, if I ever could carve several months to do the research and several months unencumbered to write, I'd really like to do something a comparative history of the 1st Infantry Division in Vietnam and the 1st Marine Division in Vietnam looking at thematic chapters on leadership, on training, on doctrine,
2: mm-hmm. on
1: counterinsurgency, on leadership, on morale, and because granted they were in different areas of Vietnam, but they were both the 1st Infantry Division of the Army and the 1st Marine Division were in Vietnam for several years. So there's a, enough of a time period there to track the ebbs and the flows leading up to Tet offensive, reacting to Tet offensive, and then the post-Tet period. Uh, so I think that that's that's what I'd like to do um, if if I can. I I've done I spent most of my career doing policy institutional history and Holcomb my Holcomb book is really policy and institutional history focused on a biography, but I also got to do a little operational history, a lot of little battle history, and I found I enjoyed that. So if I could do some more of that, that would be good too. Okay.
0: A good deal. Dave, I'd like to thank you for joining us uh, here, and thanks also to our listeners. This is your host, Bob Wintermute, signing off for new books in military history. You've been listening to our interview with David Ulbrich, author of Preparing for Victory, Thomas Holcomb and the Making of the Modern Marine Corps, 1936 to 1943. This is your host, Bob Wintermute, signing off.
2: Thank you for listening to new books in military history.